This episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 10% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code CANDIDFRAME. You can now download the latest episode of The Candid Frame directly to your smartphone or tablet using the Candid Frame app. Available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows 8, you can automatically receive and listen to the latest episode minutes after it's released. Mark and download your favorites or send your comments and suggestions directly to me via the app. Download it today using your favorite app store or click on the links in the show notes found at the Candid Frame website. This is Ebody and X, and welcome to another episode of the show. Us photographers love our cameras. Some of us like cameras that are really small and compact, while others of us like a camera with a little more heft to it. Well, today's guest chooses to use a camera that you need a pickup truck to haul around. Dennis Monarchy uses a customized, uber-sized, large-format camera for his series Butterflies and Buffaloes, where he is making stunning and beautiful photographs of disappearing cultures. A chance encounter after he returned from Vietnam changed both his personal and creative life. Though his work has been honored with many awards, he is not an artist content to rest on his laurels. He is always looking for a challenge, and his latest project is certainly that. So enjoy our conversation with Dennis Monarchy. Well, Dennis, welcome to to the Candid Frame. I'm really excited to have you uh, have you on the show. Um, I discovered you because of a, of a project that you're working on, but I'd like to to start a little earlier than the the recent work that you've been doing. Um, when I talk to a lot of photographers, they talk about their their, their early epiphany, and it's usually involved like a, a dark room or, 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 or having a, a camera for the first time. But one of the things that really piqued my interest was a story about when you came back from Vietnam and you made, and you met, met a, a Native American that really sort of changed your life. And I'd like to, to start there because it seems like it's such an a important moment in, in your life that not only shaped you as a, as a person, but, but as, as, as a photographer. Can you tell us about where you were at uh, at that point in your life and why that made such a difference? Sure, that's uh, that was uh, kind of a pivotal point in my life, particularly on this project, which involves American cultures, obviously. But that I've always been involved in cultures. I come from a uh, an Italian family uh, that lived, grew up in kind of a ghetto, which but was very uh, diverse. You know, there was a a Creole hoodoo woman that lived up the alley for us when we had injuries or something like that and couldn't afford to go to a doctor. You'd go down there and it would look just like what you would imagine with all of the bottles and bubbles and this and that. And, um, and she'd actually help you out. My father strained his arm one time. She went in and in about 10 minutes, she, he was feeling pretty good. Uh, and uh, so anyway, I've always grown up in this, this kind of a mixture of people. So in the color and ethnicity, color and ethnicity never really paid any major attention to me until I recognized the fact that 
who are these people? Why, why, why don't I read about them? You know, they're, they're, they're on one level ordinary, on one level extraordinary. So that's sort of been a subliminal thing throughout my life, probably. When I went to the Army, I was drafted and, um, you know, sent to Vietnam like a lot of, a lot of people were. And at that point in time, when we came back, you don't go through that kind of trauma uh, without being affected by it, and mostly in a negative way. Uh, at this point in my life, I don't look at it as negative because so many things have happened since then uh, that were positive from that afterward. But uh, like when I came back, I had problems, you know, with drinking and anger management, all the things that most soldiers end up having problems with. But at that point, there was no real kind of understanding of post-traumatic stress disorders and so forth. We just kind of, you know, just chill out and you'll be fine. It'll take a while. Anyway, I wasn't chilling out and I had met an Indian chief in Chapel Hill, which is a great little town in Carolina. And somehow we became friends for some reason because we were probably the two most different people on the planet. But he knew that I was a photographer and he wanted some documentation of his tribe, you know, and he invited me. He says, you're pretty screwed up, kid. Why don't you just come and live with us for however? You know, you can stay with me and my family and, you know, there's no pressure, you know, just do with help with the chores. You hunt fish and butcher and do this and take care of things and fix things. But, you know, everything is in order. There's nothing crazy. Uh, you're not going to be, there's not any crazy demands on you. You'll have plenty of time to take your pictures and, and we'll just have fun, you know. And he was a musician also. Um, so we'd sit and sing and play songs in the evening. And during the day, in the mornings, we'd go fishing or hunting, you know. And there was never any great competition on who got the most or whatever. It was about who had the most fun or some crazy thing that happened. You fell in the mud or whatever. It was just a different way of life, you know. I've always been competitive. And all of a sudden, you didn't have to be competitive. And that was a very uh, calming effect on me. Anyway, uh, so I lived with them for actually six months. And then I came back and I started my business and, you know, didn't really realize kind of the effect it had on me uh, until a friend of mine, a Navajo Indian, who is in my picture series that I don't know if you've seen or not, but anyway, Yazi is his name. And we were in Vietnam together. And... Uh, he had similar problems that I had, you know, and he, being an Indian, his cure was with a white man, and the irony is my cure was with his mm. people, and I was pretty much back in order in about six months, and he had been struggling with his problems for at least 20 years until he sort of got, got it together. So, I mean, it, it's, there are simple things and simple ways to treat problems, and I fell in love with the people, obviously, and... Um, and then from then on, I, then I came back and I became a photographer, you know, professional photographer. And, but almost every year I took a sabbatical of a, a week or two weeks or a month or something, whatever I can afford, and went and lived with a culture and photographed them like circus workers, uh, other Indians, cowboys up in the Powder River region, homeless. I did many homeless deals where I tried to raise money for them and so forth. And we had shows and exhibits so it's all been a part of my life, uh, sort of adjacent to my commercial work. And, and also, it's sort of more associated itself with my artwork.
that's basically the story about the Lumbee tribe and Chief Barton, who was my mentor. It seems like it's an, an interesting sort of setup for, for your career, particularly since because of your focus on, you know, invisible and vanishing cultures. And, and I'm wondering that how that experience sort of influenced how you saw what you could do with your camera. Because to, to my thinking, during that, during that period, if people were thinking of like other cultures, they were often sort of relegated to magazines like National Geographic, where, you know, people of different, you know, color skin, different cultures were in other countries. And that those kind of communities in the United States were not things you commonly found in in magazines or, or, or books. So, you know, as you started building your career and you started focusing on this sort of this genre of, of photography, what were you thinking in terms of what you could do with your, your camera. Did you feel a sense of responsibility in terms of, well, I have this tool to, to communicate and I need to make best use of it as I can? Or were you primarily concerned with just eking out a career as a photographer? Well, first of all, let me say that that's the best question that is anybody's asked about sort of the project and my approach to it and whatever. Uh, brilliant, actually. But I don't think we're ready to deal with that yet, okay? Okay. Let's take a step back and find out how I sort of got involved with this big camera. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then we'll go back and address this, because I really want to address this, because it's really important. Okay, yeah, yeah. Tell us about that, the big camera. Anyway, when I was in college, I went to RIT. I don't know if you know that school. Anyway, it's up in Rochester, New York. And we had a field trip to New York City every year. We'd always get to go to Avedon Studio or Penn Studio or something like that, or one of the great fashion photographers or... Bruce Weber or something like that. We'd also have field trips, of course, to the museums and especially the Museum of Modern Art, which was, of course, my favorite, you know, before I went to the Army. I finished college and, and then I actually went to New York and became uh, an assistant to Irving Penn, which is probably the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And he was also majorly involved with cultures. And when you speak of cultures of National Geographic, and he's probably created the bibliography or the, you know, the menu for all the great, interesting Dahomey, New Guinea, Mudmen, Gypsies, whatever, back, way back then, you know, and that's been done 50 years ago for, he did that most of his career. Every year he'd take a trip to another culture. Only his pictures were the coolest pictures, you know. Uh, you see a lot of stuff now that's nice because the cultures are so colorful and interesting. But at any rate, uh, I'd always go to the Museum of Modern Art whenever there was a new photo show up. And I remember one time going up at that point before it was before the new building, and you go up the escalator. There was three floors, and the first floor was general for all special events, and second floor was painting, and third floor was design and photography and things. And whenever there was a new photo show, it was on the third floor. So I remember one day taking the escalator up, and I was in the second floor floor landing and I looked over and I saw this giant black and white portrait that was about 10 feet tall, eight feet maybe. But it was stunning, you know, and it looked more, it was more captivating than any photograph I'd ever seen. And then I finally walked closer to it and found it was a painting by Chuck Close, who was a photorealist painter. Mm, yeah. uh, and it just knocked my socks off. And I said, why would this painter, as wonderfully talented as he is, be able to capture something and photograph and present it in a way that we can't do it in photography because whatever the size was, it was eight by eight or whatever, it was painted one to one and that was very brilliant and clear at that thing. Whereas when 
photography's blown up. You know, I mean, even in the best digital stuff now, you go up to about four feet, five feet, you can get away with it. But after that, it starts to get illusionary. And photographs up when I would go up to the third floor are always these really beautiful things, but very small. And I had that fascination for this huge size because I've always been fascinated by that, you know, and particularly nowadays when we're Skyping and looking in the computers and uh, all of the technology is designed so that you can, you know, make a beautiful thing for your computer. Uh, I have art shows uh, in, you know, and I shoot much, much of my artwork is done digitally because it's just so convenient and, um, you know, it works really good up to about 36 inches or 40 inches. Uh, after that, I, you know, you can't really use it, but uh, I can't. But but it's very functional as a creative tool because it's very uh, fluent, you know. I mean, you don't even think about it. Just The camera is an extension of your eye when you're talking the digital level. You just have to be very, very careful that you don't use the camera the wrong way. I mean, I don't do a lot of Photoshop, you know, recreations. Uh, the subject that I shoot is the subject that, that will record itself on the on the chip. I may refine the color, tweak this or whatever, but it's not. I'm not creating another image of it. So it's basically I'm using it as a photography tool, not a compositional, you know, Photoshop kind of thing. Uh, and it works great for me, but. You know, there's very strict limitations on size. And, and subliminally, I've always been mesmerized by this Chuck Close painting. And throughout my career, I kept making bigger and bigger cameras, you know, just to try to get to that point. Then I finally realized it is size. But size has problems because the bigger it is, the more complicated to use. Now my negatives are looking at one now, and it's like six feet tall, you know, by almost five feet wide. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, on one piece of film, somebody was interviewing me from uh, Amsterdam, and the interviewer's question was, uh, if this had megapixels or pixels, how many pixels would this have? I said, well, I have no clue. You know, it's not about try, trying to figure that out. It's just that I know I can build a 24-foot print, 16 by 24-foot print, that's just as clear as a contact sheet almost, and it's just amazing. And he said, well, I got a friend's a physicist, let me find it. He called me back. He says, we calculated it, and the equivalent pixels to your negative would be 97,000. Now you, the Hasselblads go up to like maybe 60 megapixels and so forth. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> it's in a different world. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And you can see when you're to, to blowing something up of a face, you can see like I shot a little girl – you can see her pores, which you can't see with your eyes, and within the pores, you can see the hair follicles growing. One of my assistants, I did a test shot of him, and he took it to a microscope, uh, one of the little sections of his beard, and he blew it up, and he could see a, a beard hair, the angle at which it was shaven, and the hollow tube quality of the actual hair. And this was from a full waist-to-head shot. So you, you get some clue as to the, the, the detail that you get into this uh, camera. Anyway, what it does is it gives me the ability to make my shows the size I want, which is 16 by 24 feet. And at that point, it's just as clear as anything you've ever seen, you know, close up. What went into the construction of that? Because I can't even imagine building my, my own camera. You, it seems like you had 
created other cameras before, but tell us about what was involved in creating this thing and, and, and provide my listeners the, the dimensions of it because uh, this thing is, is massive. Yeah. Did you see a picture of it? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's basically the size of a semi-trailer, 35 feet long. It's as big as I can possibly get it on the road. Okay. So it's <laughs> eight and a half feet wide by 12 feet tall by 35 feet long. It looks stunning, too. It's like, uh, this is my third prototype, by the way. Uh, the first two were very functional, and uh, the second one, I, I actually, they're all studio-bound. They weren't certainly on wheels or anything, but uh, I'd bring my subjects to the studio uh, and uh, photograph them and because uh, I had control. It would take four of us to develop one of them, uh, and it would take hours and hours and hours to shoot a picture because of the precise focusing that you had to do and, and a lot of stuff. But at any rate, uh, at one point I took one of my prototypes and I cut it apart, put it in the truck and drove it down to uh, the Atchafalaya Swamp Basin in uh, Louisiana and photographed Cajuns. We built, rebuilt it in an old fish house. Uh, and when I did that, I, I said, wow, oh, this is cool because these are people that I want to photograph. You know, they're, I generally photograph people even athletes, even famous athletes, after work or after a workout or something, because at that point they're less, you know, like a metrosexual, I guess the word people use. If, if you could get into, you know, the, the construction of, of, of the camera, like, you know, the, the optics for it, what you constructed it uh, from, because, and, and also how do you contend with the issues of the materials, light leaks, particularly since you're taking this thing outdoors, you know, Bella's extension factor, all those things that you normally don't have to figure out when you like buy a buy a camera, but when you're constructing one, you have to take all these things into consideration. So can you tell us about just the physical manifestation and what it's made of and how you put it together? We built this, uh, it was actually born up in Monroe, Wisconsin, which is a, a great little welding shop, you know, and uh, with great, great artisans there. Um, and I, I kept, I called all over the country. Nobody would talk to me. They hung up on me and thought I was crazy, which a lot of people do anyway. But uh, finally, uh, I, I got a hold of this little welding shop in Monroe, Wisconsin, because I'd seen a trailer that they'd built online, and it was so beautiful. It was very simple, but but nicely designed, you know. So. I called up and I said, look, you're going to hang up on me, but this is what I got, you know, and they're not going to hang up on you. We love American project, American cultures, you know, they were just all over that. And so they really got involved with the whole thing. So I've had many people, you know, 30 or 40 people probably in the last couple of years that have just fallen in love with the project and gotten involved and so forth. So we went up there and uh, a friend of mine is an engineer. It started out as a, um, what do you call it, um, a computerized animated drawing, like a video. Okay, yeah. Of, the, of a, a time-lapse assemblage of this camera. That took about five months to do, okay, where I literally had to build the final prototype, precise dimensions, as we computerized the sizes and the, the dimensions and, and all that kind of stuff. So then I had my final computer uh my final prototype made which is going to be identical to the final camera when it was produced so fine i shot a lot of pictures with that everything worked fine and then we got a computer animation of this design camera concept camera and um then i started to look for funding for it because it was a little expensive and finally uh 
got the funding for it, and we end up building the final prototype. And generally, even if you go to a car show and you know you look at a uh, the prototype of the car, and then you eventually see the car, there's always a lot of compromises in actual production. Uh, it never looks as good as the concept car. Well, th this is the opposite. Now, I don't, this is the only time this ever happened to me in my life. This looks better than the concept thing, which is amazing, due to a lot of friends and so forth that are experts in certain fields and engineering and metal fabrication and whatever. So we did. We got a bunch of people. We got all together. Uh, my main design coordinator uh, computerized the camera uh, in his computer to get exact dimensions because, like, the bellows are made out of steel. So each bellow, and there's probably 15 of them, has three pieces of bent steel that bolt together to make a bellow. And then before they are attached to each other, they're covered with this leather kind of vinyl. So it's very complex the way there's, we counted something like 20,000 bolts that hold this thing together. We got it all computerized. Uh, we got all the people that would cut the metal, weld the metal, bend the metal. And then we took it all up to Wisconsin and just on a three-week, 24-hour-a-day marathon, assembled it and brought it back. Uh, during this whole process, I have a friend, a Native American advisor. Her name is Wendy White Eagle. And her husband is a metal fabricator, and he called up out of the blue one time. He says, what are you going to do for a lens? I says, well, I've got some ideas, but it's, it's the hardest part of it because it's so complicated in engineering. He says, what about if I just give you the lens? I said, well, it'd be nice, you know, but I can't afford it. He says, I'm giving it to you. I said, I know, I can't afford the materials that you would use for your computers and cutting machines. He says, look, I'm, I'm going to give you the whole thing. I said, all right, but... Even if you give it to me, I'm going to be really fussy about it. He says, that's what I want. I want something magnificent out of this. So it took him about four months to build the lens. Uh, we recreated it out of an old Kodak Victor shutter lens. It weighs 300 pounds, if you can imagine. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, so that was that's the crown. That's the heart of the whole thing, the centerpiece of the whole thing. You know, the wood is all African mahogany sort of to look like an old Deerdorf wood camera, you know, and the uh, all of the uh, metal work is all brass looking. It's all made out of aluminum because of the weight, but uh, it has black brass plated and so forth. And it's built on a beautiful trailer that uh, hooks onto a truck and you drive it down the road. It's a one-of-a-kind thing, obviously, so every single aspect of it has to be invented on the spot, but it, it, it just looks beautiful, you know? Yeah, it does. It looks stunning. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's much more functional than my, any of my prototypes because it's mechanized to some degree, and it has the ability to even go further than that. All the subject and camera planes are all on motors that they go back and forth around, you know, so, so it's pretty cool. The entire back of the camera opens up, which is, I wanted to do. They thought I, they thought it couldn't be done, and I said, it probably can't, but let's try it anyway. And the reason for that is that when you go to a culture, you know, when you drive this thing to like a, like a primitive type American culture that's way, way off the beaten track, it's almost like the Iron Horse is coming to town. You know, it's just a strange thing. And I designed it uh, to be nostalgic looking like an old studio camera 
because many people would kind of feel more comfortable with that. It could have looked like anything, like a spaceship. You know, it's basically a lens to film distance and so forth. But I wanted it friendly looking. And when we get into a culture, what we do is we open the entire back up and uh, people can walk through the camera. They can have a lunch in the camera. I don't care. You know, it's, it, it's interactive, uh, even to the point where I have it closed and I'm taking a picture of someone. Uh, I have a, um, a witness camera built into the lens that hooks up to a 80 inch video monitor that would be with a film holder in a real view camera but it's an 80 inch monitor that records real time so that the tribe or the culture that I'm with can literally watch from behind it's so far behind they're not interrupting the subject but they can be a part of the actual shoot what are you using for 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 for, for film up for this because it's not stuff you can get off the shelf but no I got it at Costco's it was a great deal uh, <laughs> a film's still a problem it's always a problem I have I bought a whole bunch of it Ilford. Kodak was the most logical choice, and I got some test film from Kodak. Uh, and then they went bankrupt, of course, and then they downsized their roles. And then I went to uh, Ilford because they such a beautiful film, and, and I got a bunch of film from them. And then they started to downsize, and there's a couple other companies that I'm working with now to try to get some more. It's not easy. I mean, it's, it's in, a, in a couple of years, we're talking about the 200th anniversary of the invention of the camera. And uh, ten, 10 or so years ago, you probably had maybe 95% film and 5% video or dis, did it, digital. Now it's the total, it's probably 99% digital and 1% film. A lot of the young photographers are, are getting um, kind of bored with the digital and are going back to some of the uh, antique processes like wet plates. So they're very beautiful, you know, very very time consuming to do and very you know very you have to be very skilled to do that and uh which i i really appreciate the young people getting into these things because they're so gorgeous you know and my my world is more contemporary and um one of the the camera seems nostalgic and sort of antique but the technology that we put in it is very sophisticated i'm not trying to recreate old looking pictures these are brilliant spectacular, clear, crystalline kind of images that are, I mean, they have to be the best ever done as far as technological uh, concern is because nothing's ever been done that big. And uh, I've never seen anything as clear, and I've been in the business for a long time, historian, whatever, uh, photographer. Yeah, it just rocks my socks when I see one of these things. Man, I've got a six-foot negative on my window by my office, and I look at that thing every morning, and it just reminds me of all the blood and pieces of skin that I've left into that camera trying to construct it. It's, it's just stunning. Yeah, it's a phenomenal accomplishment. And now I'd like to take the time to thank our sponsor. You know, one of the recent changes made by Squarespace is the inclusion of a commerce function on all of its websites. So whether you're selling prints, eBooks, or any other photographic service, your website becomes your full service presence on the web, allowing you to handle all your transactions right on your site. That means you have the infrastructure to earn money while you sleep. But try it out for yourself today and take advantage of the 14 day free trial. You don't need a credit card, just create an account and just enjoy yourself. 
When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code CANDIDFRAME to get 10% off and to show your support for the show. Squarespace, everything you need to create an exceptional website. Why don't you tell us how you're using this for your project, butterflies and, and, and buffaloes? Tell us about what the you know what the overall concept is and how and the kinds of images that you're able to make with this camera that you wouldn't be able to make with anything else. Well, it's basically it's not like I could do a lot more with a lot easier camera to work with. That's for sure. You know, it's not an easy camera to work. You know, everything is very precise and whatever. So. I've simplified everything to a white background and to you know simple lighting, um, very crisp lighting, no backgrounds uh, in the pictures because I don't want it to be about anything other than the people that I'm photographing. And I'll, I'll readdress an issue issue that you mentioned up front, which was interesting. When most people think of cultures, they think of National Geographic, and there's several photographers now that are doing some really beautiful things of different cultures all over the world. And they're spectacular looking in color. Uh, you know, some of the New Guinea mud men or, you know, some of the African, you know, lion hunters and uh, some of the people uh, from, you know, Siberia. And they're all so magnificently the regalia, you know, with uh, bones in their faces and steel rings on their neck and, you know, all kinds of wonderful, uh, you know, costumes. I guess regalia would be a better word, but, and they make such natural subjects, you know, because they're all so different. But our American cultures, and that's another reason for the big camera, are very subtle. You can go to the swamps of uh, the uh, Louisiana and find a French-Canadian Cajun. Uh, and then find somebody that's a farmer in Wisconsin and put them side by side. And I mean, there's not a whole lot of difference, you know, uh, in there's just the physiognomy, but there is a difference in spirit and whatever, you know? So what I'm able to do with this camera is photograph someone so precisely that all of the nuances seem to come out and they become special, even though, and I, what I've, what my pet peeve is in photography and culture photography and whatever is that most photographers take the low hanging fruit. You know, you see all these reality shows and you see uh, even Avedon, who is one of my favorite photographers, did this show about 40 years ago of in the West, in the American West. I mean, it was a magnificent exhibit. It was the best photo exhibit I'd ever seen the way it was hung. But the actual subjects were sort of Hollywood, you know, kind of representations of drifters and, you know, who's got the most deformities and whatever. And there's a certain tendency to go towards the sensational outliers of a particular culture to sort of be more dramatic. And that's always bothered me because it's a dishonest, number one. It's manipulative and it's self-serving, you know, and uh, I do enough work that's artistically, I think, pretty interesting, you know, for my strict artwork, whether it's the nudes or whatever. I did a series on metal, which I'm very, very pleased with, but they're all pretty sensational as far as their the costuming and the, 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 the people and 
paint them and do this and whatever. This is a special project to me. I want this to be artistically as good as I can do it, but on one hand, on the other hand, I don't want it to be a cheap shot in any way. And I reject anybody that gets wants to get involved with this thing that sort of wants to take it down that road. A lot of uh, TV networks have wanted to do uh, follow us around and do series on the project, but their motivations are, are not pure. You know, and so I'm trying to keep this thing on on a really pure level. Uh, and the way the camera works, I can just take some person that you would kind of look at and think, oh, they're nice, you know, whatever, and then just isolate them on this white and crystal clarity of their faces and let their eyes explode on me, you know, and it's just magnificent to me. And there's a process to where I go about the photograph because it, it, is, it is really about the eyes. And I know that throughout my career in photography, whenever I was doing portraits, I was always hyper-focused on eye detail and the concept of an eye and what it means. And generally, the eyes get a little dreary unless someone has these brilliant light-colored eyes. You know, they sort of blend in particularly in black and white. And so I've developed this protocol of how I eventually, once I get everybody set, once I know what I'm doing, I get to know someone, I bring them to a place in their life where they are comfortable and sort of they disassociate themselves from the fact that their juxtaposition is in front of a gigantic machine that's going to, like, laser print them <laughs> forever. You know, it's intimidating in a way. Um, but if I talk to you and I say, look, let's go back into your life. Let's find some place where you you feel that, you know, you're really comfortable. Something that's profound that happened to you, a birth of a child or whatever, you know, some important event. And just let's get into that place right now. And you could literally see their face change as soon as they hit that mark. So And then all of a sudden, you've got them in a comfortable place. So you've got them away from this big technology, and you've got them into their own world. And then I have a, a rheostat series on the lights of the camera that go really down. So the lower that I, I dim the lights, the larger the pupils become. When I see a size of the pupil I like, that's when I start to take the picture. And that's, uh, Rembrandt did two paintings one time. The, exactly the same woman, uh, same wardrobe, same background. They're two identical, like stereo pictures, one of the... And he would show them to his friends, and he'd say, which, which one do you like better? And they'd say, well, you know, they're the same. He said, I know they're the same. Just pick one. And they'd pick one. And everybody picked one. And they all picked the same one. The only difference between the two pictures is the pupils on her eyes were a little bigger on the one that everyone picked because she looked more inviting they could connect with more. So I use that technique when I'm doing a portrait because I want the, I don't want a small pupil because it looks distant and, you know, whatever. So there's a lot of things like that that, that I go through when I'm making a portrait just to make sure that um, I can try to capture the person, you know, as close as I can to who they are and try to get something special from them and try to identify them with their culture a little bit. I mean, one of the things you have to do when you're looking at certain cultures, particularly Native Americans, uh, because there's probably five distinct different physical 
types of Native Americans from the Inuits uh, to the Northwesterns to the Plains Indians were nomadic, followed the buffalo long and gaunts down to the Pueblo Indians in the south who are sort of sedentary in their adobes and they become shorter because they're intermarried probably with the Aztecs at some point and they're not chasing buffalo around, they're growing corn and so forth. So they have a different facial, they're more round faced and you get down to the Apache, more square faced. You get into the Cherokee, they get a little bit gaunt again. The Lumbees that I lived with, that was the largest tribe east of the Mississippi, more looked more like Europeans in a sense because they, when Sir Walter Raleigh's colonists came, they actually adopted some of them because one of the hostile tribes was going to trying to kill them, so they took the colonists in and moved inland. Everyone think they died, but they actually intermarried with the Lumbee tribe. So there's a lot of that history that goes on. And you want to capture as much as you can. And this camera gives me, number one, a spectacular 24-foot print, uh, and it also gives me the closest thing I can get to a person. You know, it's sort of like you get these levels of separation, and there's not many levels in this thing. It's pretty real. What are your goals for, for, for the project? Who would you, you know, like to, to, to photograph or what cultures are you keen to photograph in the time that you've allotted for, for it? And, and how, you know, how many images are you hoping to, to create? Uh, is, there, are you, is this going to end up in a book, an exhibition? Can you give our listeners an idea in terms of, you know, what you're going for with this? Uh, yeah, it's, it's um, one-year travel. It could be two but I've identified 50 cultures that I want to visit uh, all around the country. It starts out maybe on the South Sea Islands off the Carolinas where there's a, a group of African Americans um, called the Gullah Geechee. Um, and they are, they still speak Sierra Leone. They were freed slaves or slaves or slaves that were brought over it never sold or something. Anyway, plantation thing would close or something and they wouldn't they would be kind of intermingling in the city almost homeless and then finally the south gave them some islands off the south sea um islands and they created their own colony there and they still have african customs and speak the language and so forth and because they're so isolated fantastic really beautiful i photographed one woman already from that culture and it was so stunning. I mean, their different skin's a little different color. They look a little different. They're certainly more African looking. Uh, and I want to start there. And then I want to head south to the Florida area. You've got Afro Cubans, uh, Cubans, uh, the Seminoles live in the, uh, the Everglades. Then you go along the South Shore and you get to the Delta. And then you have, uh, you get up into Louisiana, you get uh, Creole and go further west and south to the swamps and you get the Cajuns and then you go up the Mississippi River and then you go over to the Rocky Mountain region. You go up through Idaho where there literally mountain men still exist where they live out in the wilderness and make their own clothes, do everything. They just, they're just uh, not city people, you know, and they're really amazing. And then there's the working cowboy. There's still a few real pure working cowboys out there. I was fortunate to be able to spend a couple of weeks with them one time. And then you go up 
north to Dakotas and get to the uh, Pine Ridge Reservation, which is a, the Sioux Reservation, which is an amazing place in a sense. It's, it's devastating. Uh, there's probably 80% unemployment. And it's gang overrun by gangs. And uh, the gang members feel that by being in the gang and doing what the gangs do, they are closer to the original Sioux warriors, the ones that took Custer out, you know, uh, because they don't really have a way to relate to their history. And a part of this whole project is educational is that we will leave books. I mean, I think some of the young Sioux, uh, even the gangbangers, are starting to realize that the culture is so important that they've just lost. So part of this whole project is just to remind everybody, including people within the cultures, how beautiful and how amazing they are, uh, and yet sh let them share themselves and their cultures with people that would never get there. I guess the question is, the first, the first, there's three parts to this thing. The first part was trying to build this camera that works, and we did that. Now the second is trying to get funding for our trip, which we may have. And the third is the exhibit concept, and where that concept becomes an exhibit, it becomes books, documentaries, um, and so forth. So it's the pic the camera is the centerpiece of the the merging with the culture, and then from within the camera experiences like documentaries, books, histories, so forth. We're working with anthropologists from areas and local elders and chiefs and medicine men and so forth. It's it's an exciting project. I was really thrilled to discover it, and uh, I'm really pleased to have the chance to, to share it with my listeners. But uh, well, my last my last question that I ask each guest is that I ask them to recommend and suggest a photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own, and it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. Uh, so who would that one photographer be and why? If I had 10 children and you said, which one do you like better? That's not a question I could even come close to answering. I mean, there's so many brilliant, brilliant photographers throughout history. I said I served my apprenticeship with Irving Penn, who, in, in my opinion, is the greatest photographer that ever lived, you know, of any discipline or genre. Avedon, even though I was set by his show, he's fabulous, just amazing photographer. And they, uh, they were commercial photographers in a strict sense, but on the artistic sense, they probably contributed as much as anyone, you know, uh, and more so because they had the luxury of doing exotic things like traveling and so forth. You know, if you're talking about photographers that, that you might not know so much of, they know there's like what? Duanu, uh, uh, who I love. Uh, there are uh, Hiro, Japanese photographers, amazing. Of course, I, I, I tell you what, I, uh, you know, Weston, of course, uh, these are all people that you probably know. Uh, I, I see certain small groups of photographs I like by, by an unknown photographer that I fall in love with the pictures. But when I think of studying someone, uh, I think. Uh, if you knew the work of Irving Penn, I think you would be totally inspired because he's done everything from the technological innovation to his platinum prints uh, 
to his travels to different cultures around the world, to his amazing fashion photographs and books. Uh, so I hope that answers it. But I, it's, it's, I tell you what, there's so many wonderful photographers out there that this move me. Uh, even if it's two pictures in their life they've done that they're so stunning that I can't forget them. I, I don't have a good answer. I'm sorry. Well, the, those suggestions are awesome enough. So uh, thank you for that. So where can people go to find out more about you, your work, and, and your project? Well, uh, at this point, uh, uh, my personal website, menarchy.com, M-A-N-A-R-C-H-Y. Then Butterflies and Buffalo is the official website of the project we're working on. In a, about a month, it'll be updated to a tremendous. Right now, it's got everything you need to know about it. It's, there are videos. There's videos of the camera built in the first. My first exhibit was at uh, up Riverside Plaza in Chicago in September. Um, that's represented in there, and it'll tell pretty much about the project. So, butterfliesandbuffalo.com. Well, thank you so much for your for your time, Dennis. I really enjoyed discovering more about you and, and your project. And I wish you every every bit of luck with it. Thank you so much. I'm going to need it. Thank you for joining us. You can show your continued support for the work we do here at TCF by making donations of any amount using PayPal. By clicking on the links in the show notes or on the website, your contributions help us to improve the show. Each episode of The Candid Frame is brought to you with the contributions of our audio engineer, Martin Taylor, who you can find at the other martintaylor.com. Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music is available via incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame.